Let's join uh, together again in saying our theme verse for this sermon series. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So some of you have probably noticed that over the years there, we've tried to find different ways to memorize uh, scripture in worship services, and that of course has uh, mixed results. And so one of the things that we've noted is that if we just say the verse every week, you might just learn it. So that's been the hope. Because our hope over the last uh, number of months as we've been in the Gospel of Matthew is that we would not only have a deeper and a wider love for who Jesus is as a shepherd who has compassion on the crowds, but that we also, as Jesus' disciples, would have a greater sense of how to live out that heart of love in our own lives. And this morning, we have a a unique and odd text that helps us to see in many ways the scope and quality of Jesus' care as we read together Matthew 17, verses 1 through 23. The context of this passage, as we noted uh, last week, is that Peter has declared Jesus to be the Christ, but doesn't necessarily like the mission that Jesus knows being the Messiah means. And so this morning, we get a, a fuller sense of that picture together. So as uh, we anticipate reading, let's join together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and as we open it, our prayer is that the Spirit would fill uh, my mouth, fill our hearts, open our ears, examine our lives, and provide us with what is needed, whether that's uh, critique or challenge, whether it's inspiration or hope, whether it is correction or joy, may your spirit use your words to speak to us. Through Christ we pray, amen. As we read, I want to encourage you to pay attention to the number of times the word them shows up. Most commentators and scholars note that the emphasis of this passage is not on Jesus. And there's a significance to that because as we know, we're going to watch as the disciples go up the mountain with Jesus and Jesus is going to be revealed in all of his glory and he's going to get to talk to Moses and Elijah. And there's a sense that, or a temptation that we have that as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, it's almost as if he needs a pickup. Right? Sometimes when we're going to be uh, going on uh, a hard day's work or a long hike, you maybe stop, you grab your 
uh, peanut pack or you grab your gel goo pack if you're running the fifth third, your, the riverbank run, whatever it is, you, you stop halfway and you need a little bit of a pick-me-up. And so there's a temptation that we imagine that Jesus is struggling to make it to the finish line. But the repetition of them over and over in this text reminds us that Jesus' revelation of glory is for the disciples. The focus is on how they experience this and how it will impact their understanding of who Jesus is and what their mission in following after him what it looks like. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. To him, listen. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and at the moment he was healed. The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. This is the word of the Lord. This is an odd event 
until we remember the context that the first half of Matthew ended with the climax of Peter declaring, you are the Christ. And then Jesus, in the very next breath, taking his disciples to say, this now means we are heading to Jerusalem where I am going to die. And so the context is about the disciples understanding what it truly means for Jesus to be the Messiah. What does that mission look like and how is he going to accomplish it? And so Jesus takes the disciples up and we're on a top of a mountain and there's lots of speculation about where this is. And Jesus is transfigured. It looks a lot like Moses on Mount Sinai when the glory of God reflects off of Moses' face. And Moses is there and Elijah is there and the law and the prophets and the scope of the Old Testament. And they are talking together as Peter, James, and John watch. And it's fascinating to note that in this context, they do not throw themselves down on their knees. They don't fall on their faces. Even though the glory of God is reflected in the person of Jesus, it's almost as if this is sort of a normal conversation that they are watching unfold. And Peter's response signals to us that he misunderstands still who Jesus is. Because he opens his mouth and he says, hey, it's good for us to be here, duh. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. And in Peter saying this, Peter is imagining that each shelter will equally reflect the grandness and greatness of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. As if they are all equally prophetic. As if they are all equal in power. As if they are all equal in worthy of being listened to. And note that it's to this statement that the voice comes from the cloud. And if there were pyrotechnics, the spotlight from heaven would come down and illustrate only one. It would shine on Jesus. And in that moment, we're not told exactly what happens to Elijah and Moses, but the sense very much is that for the view of the disciples, those two disappear. And Jesus alone is left. And I read that with emphasis, the order that the Greek text highlights, listen, this is the one I love. This is the one with whom I'm pleased. This is my son. To him, listen. Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast with a number of uh, church leaders. It was kind of a roundtable. 
And these pastors and church leaders were talking about uh, unique challenges that they were facing today as leaders in the church. And they spent about 15 minutes unpacking the idea that what they see in the church is an unwillingness to learn. And we need to unpack that a bit because it's a it sounds like a fairly arrogant thing for a pastor to say off the bat that a congregation is not coming to a church service to learn. But, but this is what they meant. They said, it used to be that if you wanted to know what the Bible said about a particular topic or a particular cultural reality, about what the, uh, the Bible or the church has to say about politics or uh, human sexuality or business or how to, how to be a family, you would go to church and you would, you would talk to your elders and your deacons and you would listen to the pastor and you would study together as the people of God what it is that the Bible says for us. And these church leaders then reflected that for the most part, one of the things that they see in today's world is that people come to church with their minds already made up about all of those topics. And so when they hear in church something that they disagree with, they find a different home that will tell them what they already know. And I couldn't help but wonder a little bit if Peter, in this text, is, is showing his cards a little bit like we sometimes do. How many of us, when we're struggling with an issue, for example, how to think about the indictments, that's a neutral question. How many of us are beginning that thought process and that investigation, that wrestle with our brothers and sisters in Christ in church, asking our church leaders how we should process this, how we should think about it? Do we first and foremost go to the Bible and wrestle with what does... Jesus say about the authorities, about what the New Testament authors, what does the Old Testament say? Do we wrestle with Scripture first and foremost? Or does the voice we listen to, the first podcast that pops up in our feed? Or the particular news station that we turn to first? And just to be clear, I'm putting myself right into this magnifying glass. Because I have the podcasts I like to listen to and the church leaders I like to go to. And often what happens is, instead of going first to investigate and to unpack and learn and wrestle and struggle and to pray, I listen to their voice and then read back in. And so as I'm putting myself under the text of Matthew 17 this week, and I'm hearing the Father's voice declare from heaven, to this one, listen. I'm feeling the conviction in my own heart. And I couldn't help but wonder if that's true for most of us. 
If one of the reasons that the church is struggling to speak into so many of these things is because the things that we say in response have less to do with this and more to do with our favorite pundit, have less to do with the wrestling that takes place within the context of brothers and sisters in Christ, and more to do with another voice. And yet Jesus, the Son of God who is filled with glory, in grace reaches down to touch the disciples and say, don't be afraid. Because if only the perfect, if only those who listened only to the voice of God and responded perfectly to it were able to receive the grace of Jesus Christ and be part of the family of God, none would be saved. And yet we see Jesus step past the complete misunderstanding of Peter and reach down and say, don't be afraid. And then we watch as Jesus not only does that, but he says to the disciples, we've got to go back down the mountain. We've got to go back down into the muck and the mire of everyday life. And there are two ways of reading and understanding Jesus' questions in verse 17. The, you unbelieving perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I bear with you? On the one hand, it could be Jesus hitting his head saying, oh my word, you guys are unbelievable. How long will I put up with you? Or the other way to hear it is to say, you unbelieving generation, if only you would see me for who I am. How long will I stay with you? Long enough to give my life for you. How long will I put up with you? How long will I bear with you? Long enough until I bear every one of your burdens on my back as I hang from the tree so that you might be filled with my spirit so that when I speak to you, you will know my voice. And we witness as Jesus dips down into the misunderstanding of Peter and the misunderstanding of the crowds and the inability of the disciples to get this right. It's worth wondering why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon if it was perhaps that they were listening to the wrong voice. If instead of hearing the voice of Jesus who sent them out as the 72, who sent them out with all of the authority that I have, if instead of hearing that voice as they're praying over this boy, they're hearing a different voice. They're thinking about a different 
authority. Maybe their own. And into the faithless, to the minuscule amount of faith, the disciples and the crowds, Jesus speaks the gracious truth that I will not leave you until the work is done. And for centuries, in the transfiguration and in the baptism of Jesus, as the voice of God is speaking from the heavens, the church has heard in those words, the very words we are to hear in our baptisms, that we are beloved children, that God is pleased with us, and that we are to listen to the one who sets us free. There is no shortage of messages for us to listen to. No shortage of muck or mire to be distracted by. No shortage of any of that. We must merely try a new podcast, a new pundit, or a new place. And yet the voice of God calls us to listen to our Savior, His Son. Let's pray. God, we want to begin by asking for forgiveness. As we, uh, each of us can think of places where we're our tendency isn't to turn first to the voice of your word, but rather to hear a voice that's inside of us that we like, the voice of a friend or someone else who will tell us what we want to hear. And in doing that, we put you in a shelter and our favorite pundits in a shelter, and we we imagine that you're all a little equal. Forgive us, God. Help us to hold in high regard your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is a sword that divides bone and marrow that separates truth from falsehood. It gives us the wisdom for living and hope for the future. It tells us the truth about where our world comes from and the purpose and meaning for which we were made to worship you. And it also calls us to obedient, holy living not because it's the best way to be, but because that's what you call us to. And so may the voice that you put in our hearts, the voice of the Spirit, speak clearly to us, and may your Spirit move in us to, with a desire to want to listen 
the desire to want to dig deep and to be filled with your words and your life. As we seek to live in the muck and the mire, knowing that you are at work even in and through us, as we wait until the day that you will make all things right and new. God, this is a big prayer, but we know that you are a strong and mighty God. And so we offer it in Jesus' name. Amen.